Hi, this is Jared Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and for the podcast today, we are very happy to be joined by Stephanie Miner, former mayor of Syracuse, New York, uh, professor at NYU Wagner School, uh, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, for listeners who might not be too familiar with you, um, give us a little introduction. Who are you? Where do you come from? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, I am. Uh, I was until 2000, uh, January 1st of 2008, uh, the mayor of Syracuse, New York, which is the fifth largest city in New York State, and uh, led this uh, led the city through many challenges and continue continuing to have a city in an environment that is being challenged. Uh, kind of fancy myself a public policy nerd and wonk, and I say that with great affection, and that's why I'm happy to be here to talk about all things of urban government and politics and whatever else might come up. And just a little bit before that, sort of grew up in Syracuse? So I grew up in upstate New York in a uh, town about a half an hour south of Syracuse, uh, a rural town, uh, Cortland, New York. And I uh, went to Syracuse University, uh, spent some time in politics, went back uh, in went to SUNY Buffalo and got a law degree, was a labor lawyer in the private sector for about 10 years representing labor unions uh, and pension funds, ran for the city council in uh, 2001 and was elected and did two terms on the city council and then ran for mayor and did two terms uh, as mayor of the city of Syracuse and we have a term limit there so uh, I was uh, termed out of office, and that brought you to New York City. It you, did. It, it, my new, my newest uh, career as itinerant college <laughs> professor. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I uh, am currently a visiting urbanist uh, at NYU at the Wagner School of Public Policy. Great. So, despite leaving office in uh, January, your name comes up in the news quite frequently. Most recently, about the vacancy in the Attorney General's office, you saying that you were not planning to pursue that. Tell us why, your thought process, and, and what do you think about what's going on now in terms of the selection and the interviews and stuff going on in Albany? Well, one of the benefits uh, of not being in office is that it's given me an ability to kind of take a breath and look at where we are in our state and where we are in our country in terms of politics and government. And uh, the attorney general's vacancy situation in many ways I think illustrates the problem that people in office don't see. And that is to say the the news about Eric Schneiderman was appalling, it was shocking, um, it made me and many others that I know incredibly angry. And the next morning the assembly was meeting at 9 a.m. to talk about filling the vacancy. It was very clear to me uh, in talking to people that night during that day that people wanted to have a conversation and wanted to talk about how did this happen, why did this happen, what are we going to do, and the powers that be, if you will, were thinking about it in a transactional nature. Like, let's just put our person in, let's figure out who our person is, and, you know, let's call press conferences and let's leak stories out to the media to say, I have the most votes, I've already got it locked up, don't get in, don't get out. So I, I think that... Uh, it was again. It was clear to me, and I was like, I don't want any part of this. Like for me, back uh, backroom dealings and politics as usual is not serving anybody. It's not serving the people of upstate New York. It's not serving the people of New York City, and I think that we are seeing this writ large. I say we. I'm not sure that elected officials um, in New York State are seeing this. We have rampant corruption. I mean, everywhere you look in the state, there are more and more news stories about trials, 
uh, uh, guilty pleas, guilty verdicts, more investigations, FBI's executing search warrants, and yet you have the power establishment just being silent. Um, voters and citizens aren't silent about it. They're angry, they're upset, they're frustrated. Uh, and you can, if you stop and listen to people, you can pick that up. And what I think you're seeing now is that somewhere along the line, the powers that be did pick that up and said, okay, we got, we got to put the brakes on this right now. We can't do this as we normally would and just think of this as a, a power transaction to put somebody in place. Maybe we need to make the process look more open. Now, I hope that by making it look more open, and actual, it will actually be more open. Um, but I have my doubts because that would be a radical break from tradition, how things are done. And, you know, when you have um, Andrew Cuomo saying he's going to, quote, interview candidates for the attorney general's vacancy spot, that's just, you know, that I think is wrong um, and violates a bunch of uh, standard ethical practices for, you know, very good reasons. Um, and that's where I think we find ourselves in this state. But I also think we're having uh, much the same discussion about this country, too. And I have been talking to people and, and people have been asking me a, a number of things, but chief among them is if we are going to, you know, we believe in an ethical government and the importance of our open democracy and our open process is uh, a belief in an ethical government. And we're appalled uh, at what the Trump administration and Scott Pruitt and, and others are doing. It's hard to, uh, hard to and inappropriate to cast aspersions on that if you're looking at your own house and it's not clean. So um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> but um, just want to take a step back for a second to um, Eric Schneiderman. Did you know him very well? Um, Obviously not. No, right, <laughs> you know, right. right? Um, right. I think a lot of people have expressed yeah, that. Yeah, no. Look, I, I knew Eric as a, he was the attorney general, and he came to Syracuse, and I uh, did press conferences with him and did things. Did I have any suspicion? No. And and I, um, and part of this process of thinking back through this, just appalling and shocking uh, news was thinking, did I, did I miss? Were there signals? Did I not see it? How, how could I have seen it? The answer is I didn't. Um, and, you know, I want to, uh, applaud the woman, the women who came forward, um, and were very brave and talked about these very personal, uh, issues and this dynamic that, so the first part of my shock and just anger and being appalled was about, uh, the facts themselves. And then the second part was in that story uh, when a, a number of the victims talked about how they had gone to their friends and their friends said, oh, but he's such a good attorney general. And you think, is that really where we are now? That we are saying, well, we will forgive uh, the most rank kind of hypocrisy because we've become so polarized that we're um, going to allow this kind of behavior to stand. Thankfully, they, you know, they didn't do that. And I think we're having a good conversation now about that painful, um, and particularly painful for the victims, but an important and appropriate one. So let's talk about uh, your life before you became a visiting urbanist. Uh, your time as mayor of Syracuse, uh, eight years uh, in the city that we just learned is the, the smallest of the big five, but you were the first female mayor of one of the big five cities. What do you count as the biggest challenges you faced, your accomplishments, areas where you hope to accomplish more? How do you assess your record? So it was, um, it, it was 
challenging in personal ways and professional ways to uh, to be the mayor. The best part of being mayor is also the worst part of being mayor, which is you're never a stranger anywhere you go. Um, but it was the best kind of public service in my mind because you can actually have an impact, make people's lives better, and you can measure that impact. And so uh, the challenges that we had, at Syracuse is a very poor city, and trying to have a fiscally responsible budget and be open and transparent uh, in a climate where people and the powers that be didn't want you to do that. And, you know, the, looking at being very transactional so you could stand up and cut ribbons and announce, you know, 10,000 jobs coming to this facility. And I just wouldn't do that. And uh, a number of times had very uh, policy-based disagreements uh, with the leadership in Albany. And, you know, that kind of made me an outlier in many ways. Uh, I was comfortable with that because of who I am. You know, I was never going to be a member of the old boys club. It just was not going to happen. So I never felt like, oh, I, I got to do this to be part of that club. Um, I was very proud of the work that we did on innovation. Uh, we were really focused on infrastructure and looking at how data and technology could change the way we uh, do our infrastructure. We were on the leading edge of, of doing that. We um, with have this program called Say Yes to Education, which guaranteed students tuition-free uh, college uh, if they got into, they graduated from a city high school and then uh, were admitted into that college. And more students, um, thousands more, went to college and are graduating from college because of the work that we did in that program, the first um, in many ways of its kind in the country. You know, smart, uh, appropriate economic development that was uh, open and uh, transparent had more development in the downtown area uh, of the city of Syracuse uh, in the eight years when I was mayor than they had had in the previous 15 years, uh, based on, you know, again, based on data. So for me, it was doing good work. Uh, I What I liked about it was that you could solve problems. And that's really what intrigues me about government is solving problems and the ability to take these chronic problems and say, and as, uh, let's try a new way of doing this. Let's try a new innovative way of doing this. And then let's measure it. And if it doesn't work, we can stop doing it. And if it does work, we can continue to do it. So uh, as you left office in December, Syracuse.com, which is the, the main news site there, um, kind of assessed your mayoralty and, and they wrote, uh, as Miner's star rose outside Syracuse, she became increasingly bogged down in disputes at home. For long stretches of her administration, City Hall was tied up in fights that yielded only expense and delay. A Miner tussled with the county executive, city council, district attorney, leading developer. She did not start every battle, but she was a willing, she was ever a willing combatant. Um, and in that article, there's the, the threat of it, is that your first term was uh, kind of a smashing success, but the second term did get bogged down in some of these battles. What do you think of that assessment? Well, I think that it, um, that is what that assessment leaves out is the next chapter, which is those battles that they reference um, are the corruption battles that are going to be first were heard um, in February and March of this year when the Andrew Cuomo's right-hand guy, Joe Prococo, uh, was found guilty um, of abusing his professional position. Uh, over uh, allegations that involved Syracuse and involved that developer. Uh, the Buffalo Billion Trial, which is an umbrella, which also includes Syracuse, um, 
Syracuse projects, uh, which the county executive uh, was also a part of, is going to be, uh, you know, that trial is going on in June here. So uh, what is interesting to interesting is not the right word. What is part of and parcel of that is what I think you're seeing is the shortcoming of our politics today, that it's, you know, get the quick win, stand up and take credit for it, and don't think about what's behind it, because you're not going to be around when, you know, uh, when everything falls apart. I knew um, that what the developer was doing, uh, the projects that the governor's office was doing, were not right from an economic standpoint. I knew it wasn't good economic development. I had a sense that something was wrong, um, and we in the city sued core development for fraud, uh, and we lost that suit. Um, and yet now there was one entity that wasn't subpoenaed by the Southern District of New York in relationship to any of these allegations. It was the city of Syracuse, my office. Um, and so I think, you know, we've already, uh, I think that we have already showed that we were accurate in that the economic development projects that were heralded um, and that Syracuse.com said these are going to be terrific and that the governor stood up and made all of these uh, you know, promises uh, are now the subject of tremendous federal corruption trials. And, you know, we weren't a part of it. And we stood up and said when nobody else was willing to stand up, we stood up and said this isn't right and we're not going to be a willing participant in this. So to continue on on that theme, um, I saw you talk at an event recently and, and follow you on social media, and you know, you're obviously um, very much putting forward ideas that New Yorkers need more faith in government. There's We just saw Shelley Silver convicted again. Um, the Prococo trial, as you mentioned, there's another trial coming up. Um, what is broken, and what did you maybe have a sense of that you were just referring to, or what have you seen in terms of what is the crux of what's broken? Uh, you indicated just now that it's sometimes it's about the ribbon cutting and the quick win and not really thinking things through or bad economic development policy that I think, you know, from looking at your tenure relates to this notion of giving a lot of tax breaks and such, but how do you characterize sort of big picture what's broken? So big picture what's broken is I think elected officials are more interested in serving the needs uh, and desires of vested special interests who give campaign contributions. And so it becomes very transactional. If I give this tax benefit to this developer, he will then give me a campaign contribution. And as the number of people who actually vote goes smaller and smaller, and as, as we in New York make it tougher to vote in elections, um, it becomes this perfect cycle for elected officials, that they're, more, they're much more interested in getting reelected than they are in solving problems. And getting reelected is much easier if you can raise a million dollars and you only have 2,000 voters who show up. So it, I think the solution is, the first is, we have to make it easier to vote. Uh, we have to get more people uh, into the process, early voting, automatic registration, all the things, uh, vote by mail, that are, are become, that are done all over the country. You know, we in New York like to say, oh, we're the, you know, we're the progressive capital. Well, we are living off the fumes of what FDR and others did in the progressive era. The reality is our voting turnout is terrible. And it used to be, I used to think that this was just like, oh, our economy's moved so fast and we haven't caught up with it. It became very clear to me that 
elected officials were, uh, don't want to expand the voting pool because that's scary for them. Then all of a sudden there's a, there's a variable in there that they may not be able to control. Um, and so, and then when you have anonymous donations through LLCs and you have, and it's, you know, it's happening all over the state. So the Mangano trial in Long Island, uh, we're going to see the Buffalo Billion trial. Uh, yesterday there was a story about uh, health care, the Crystal Run healthcare care uh, and the governor. There was a story in Rochester about a developer in Rochester who the FBI executed a subpoena in his office. So, you know, uh, in western New York and Buffalo with Steve Pigeon. I mean, it's across the board. And so I think it is both the fact that the, uh, the political system has become so brittle um, and the vested powers have made it be have made it be so that the amount of people voting is so limited that then you can take these millions and millions of untraceable dollars to put uh, campaign mailings or 30 second commercials on and say, oh, everything's going great. And I promised you this factory that's going to give you uh, a million jobs. To, How did to, you, uh, you know, you, I mean, you successfully got elected to the city council twice and, and mayor twice in that system, how did you, did you have to play that game to some degree of uh, not necessarily shrinking the voting pool, but of um, dealing with contributors and, and having that back and forth? Or how did you, what was the secret formula for getting around it? So the secret formula for me for getting around it was um, standing up to it. So I kind of uh, made, uh, made my bones. There is a, uh, a mall in Syracuse uh, and when I got elected to the city council, the mall developers came and said that they were going to uh, make Destiny USA, quote, nothing like it in the world. It was going to be like Disneyland on Onondaga Lake. It was going to be spectacular. And they were asking for a tax break um, that was, and any way you measured it, was like the, the richest tax benefit in the United States. And I kept saying... Like, I don't understand. You're not committing to anything in this deal. You're just standing up and saying, like, we're going to do this. And, I mean, it, and it became bizarre. Like, they'd fly Arnold Palmer in and talk about a golf uh, a golf course under glass in Syracuse. So they were going to have an uh, remake the Erie Canal. It was going to be elevated on the second floor. And I just kept thinking, like... <laughs> Am I, you know, like the whole emperor has no, the, you know, emperor has no clothes. Is it me or is it like everybody else? And what I realized was that a lot of my colleagues and, and good people, they wanted it to be true. They wanted to say that we can solve our economic issues with single magic bullet solutions with this mall. And I kept saying, this makes no sense to me. They haven't committed to it. And the developer uh, and his team uh, were continue to be very wealthy, very powerful, and they went after me, um, like any way that you can imagine. And it was a searing experience uh, that I went through, uh, but I felt like, in my, I felt based on uh, the research that I was doing, uh, based on my instinct that I was right. And as a consequence, the voting community and the citizens at large were like, you know, she's, she's doing the right thing. She's standing up for us. And, you know, a long story short, of course, it's never became what they said it was going to become. It uh, is just a regular old mall, and but I and many would say, and I think there's some reason to believe this, uh, that I got elected mayor because of the fact that I took these uh, very difficult advocacy stances against politics as usual and giving away tax benefits as usual. The um, 
the on the campaign finance front, just as a matter of policy, um, you know, you mentioned sort of in fixing what's broken, you you went through sort of a list of voting measures. But are uh, do you have campaign finance fixes oh. that you you know would sort of yeah absolutely push I, on I, a state level and. Uh, Three or four years ago, I can't remember when, but it became very clear to me that LLCs were just corrosive to the discussion of our democracy and what was happening. And as a consequence, I unilaterally said, I'm not going to accept LLCs anymore. And I haven't, and I won't. Um, and that was something that was nobody else would do. Normally what you get is the, oh, I'd love to do that, but I'm not going to unilaterally disarm if everybody else is going to do it. And I've said to people, that's garbage. If you really think something is wrong and doing damage to our democracy, then stop accepting it. And, you know, to the leaders in, um, in Albany, they could say, you know, we will not accept LLCs, or they could say we won't pass a budget until the LLCs are, uh, you know, are ruled out of order. Um, but they don't want to. Why? Because, you know, they're getting millions, if not billions in some cases, of dollars. Right. We saw Governor Cuomo now two years ago sort of say, here's six different things you could do with the LLC loophole legislatively. And one, he said, was just outlaw it for governor's races, but nothing moved. And as you indicate, he didn't decide to just sort of voluntarily um, make that make that shift. Um, you are, um, when, when we discussed your political biography a little bit, when you outlined things, one thing you didn't mention was leading the state party. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and that I believe is part of the genesis of the, um, falling out between you and the governor, because at one point you were much more aligned. Will you sort of, uh, recount that history for us? Yeah. How did you get, uh, put in that position? What did you do in that position and how did it come apart? So, um, the, our relationship, uh, you know, I have a, professional relationship with the governor, um, and the relationship really faltered when um, February 14th of 2013, I had an op-ed published in the New York Times in which I said that borrowing to pay pension costs was irresponsible and a fiscal gimmick. Um, so let me put the pin right there and say f um, from the time Andrew Cuomo got elected um, up until essentially like that January of 2013, I had been saying to any and all people uh, publicly and privately, look, pension costs are a huge issue and you are driving municipalities into bankruptcy by making them pay this. And we've got to have a solution. We have to have a discussion about this. And I was sent, you know, go talk to the comptroller, go talk to the budget's office, go talk to the speaker's office, go talk to the Senate majority, go talk to Senate finance, go, and then, you know, start all over again. Uh, and I was, you know, really leading the charge on this issue. In Syracuse's pension costs, when I became mayor, um, had gone up 300 and 400%. Um, and every municipality uh, was feeling the same kind of growth. And we didn't have any ability to control that because all of the terms and conditions of participation in the pension fund are controlled by Albany. Now, it's different in New York City. You have your own pension funds. But... Uh, New York City controls it. So, in fact, if what they do, again, is they say, hey, uh, it's going to be a tough election year, you know, but we'll give you a, a bump in your benefits and we will make sure that you don't have to pay any contributions. And, oh, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if you give us campaign contribution, wouldn't that be great? Um, and that is really, it's an anchor around the necks of um, municipalities upstate. So, 
I was leading this charge saying we have to have a discussion about this. And before it becomes a crisis point like Detroit, like we're now seeing in Illinois, with the idea, let's, let's try to fix the problem before it becomes a crisis. I was given uh, what I can only charitably call as the runaround. Then I was told uh, that the governor was going to have a solution in the state of the state uh, uh, state of the state address, and the solution was pension borrowing. And I thought, this is not a solution. This is completely fiscally irresponsible. And then the press came on for me to say, like, hey, just get on board, just borrow for your pensions, because guess what? You're not going to be around in 10 years as mayor when, you know, when the bill comes due. I said, I can't do that. It's just, it's not right. It's not what I think, you know, I, I'm a romantic about government and solving problems. It's not what I'm going to do. Um, and so then I wrote the editorial. Uh, the op-ed, uh, and you know, and and no surprise to any of your uh, listeners who have followed. In short order, within uh, the next uh, next news cycle, there are lots of anonymous stories about how they're going to take me out at the knees and how dare I do this? Nobody liked me anyway, and blah blah blah. Um, it became clear to me uh, after that process um, that the governor and I had very different views on public policy and uh, public policy disagreements. And I wasn't going to walk in lockstep with anyone. I mean, you know, anyone. It's just not my nature. Um, but you're always going to know why I disagree with you or what the grounds are. Uh, and that just was not something that was tolerated uh, in um, Andrew Cuomo's world and, and you know, the influence that he had on the party. So I think in April of that year, um, I resigned. So virtually since that moment, I think, of that op-ed, um, people have touted the possibility that you might challenge the governor. I think that was talked about four years ago. It's certainly being talked about in this cycle. I don't know if we've mentioned yet that you're a Democrat, so we should make sure that everybody knows that we're talking about the Demo Democratic, Democratic primary. primary. Yes. Right, just to, for that fact. Yes. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about where you are in that in that decision-making process and sort of how you are analyzing sure. the prospects and the possibilities? Um, you know, as I mentioned in that uh, long-winded soliloquy, I'm a romantic about government. Um, and part of what has been very troubling to me is that there just seems to be this culture to not solve problems, uh, to engage in gimmicks, if not outright corruption, this polarization um, of our country and, and even our state, just because we're an overwhelmingly blue state, I think you're seeing this brittleness in our um, political discussions uh, that is causing, you know, pe real people are suffering. And so whether it's the public policy failures of the subway, of NYCHA, of affordable housing, of um, infrastructure, I mean, let us count the ways in which real people are suffering because of poor public policy in New York State. And part of what I am thinking about is trying to figure out what's my what's an appropriate role for me uh, to be part of this discussion um, and how um, how can it be constructive? Uh, because I think the way that our the way that our discussion is happening now um, is not. Uh, helpful. It's not helpful to say that there are only two sides, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo side, or you know, or Donald Trump side. I think that that's that's a false dichotomy. 
I also think it's a, it, we are suffering from the fact that we have, you know, all of these, all of these touch points where we say, well, where are you on this issue and where are you on that issue? And let me give you an example. Uh, I'm in favor of the $15 minimum wage, but the fact that that becomes like a buzz question, right? Where are you on minimum wage? How do you feel about it? Ignores this huge public policy challenge that is upon us about automation um, and, uh, you know, uh, and what that is going to do to our economy. So, and again, real world. You, whether or not you make $15 minimum wage is going to be irrelevant if you can't get a job. We are very close to having self-driving trucks. So everybody think about when you're on the road or in your New York and look at all of those trucks that are uh, delivering things. Those jobs aren't going to be around. And I'm not talking 10 years or some sort of uh, Ray Bradbury science fiction. I'm talking about in the next, definitely in the next term, I think, is the next four years that's going to happen. You're seeing it already in restaurants where people aren't, uh, you know, at the airports where you go up and you press on a keyboard and then one person delivers. There's no longer a waiter or waitress. It's happening in upstate New York, too, where there's restaurants where you order on keyboards and one person drives it over. As we should be having a discussion about what are we doing to prepare for that reality and where you are on the $15 minimum wage in and of itself is not going to uh, is not going to solve that problem. And yet because we are in this brittle environment where we allow this just sort of like just talk about one thing and answer that one question, you're okay or you're not okay, again, the, uh, the end result is people are suffering. The, we are talking on May 15th, um, so we're less than four months from primary day, September 13th. Um, I assume you have to make a decision pretty soon if you're going to make a run here. And, um, you know, uh, watching what's happening in the governor's race with Cynthia Nixon having gotten involved, lots of groups who are very unhappy with Governor Cuomo getting behind her, lots of endorsements, she's raising money. This Is there room for you in the race? I mean, how are you, th how are you, you know, give us a little insight into how you're thinking about it. Sure. If you, you know, you're not necessarily going to make a declaration here today, although feel free. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, how are you thinking about it? Because just from the outside looking at it, I think it'd be very interesting if you got involved, but it's getting late. Well, so let me say that if you had asked me that question last year, I would have said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. But we are in uncharted waters, and it is a tremendously turbulent or dynamic time, as witnessed by what we just saw happen with the former attorney general. So I think the old rules of dates and times and how you put together a campaign no longer apply. Now, I may be one of the few people who thinks that, by the way, which, you know, um, it could make me, you know, uh, could make me very... Uh, uh, what do I, I want to say it could make me a prophet, and you know how prophets are cursed in their own times. But I want to say, let me talk for a second about Cynthia Nixon. I, I think her addition into this race has been beneficial for everyone. And I think it's good to have more voices. And I think uh, all voices should be welcomed, and that should be part of a vibrant political dialogue. Because again, I think that the more, you know, these false dichotomies and the more brittle we become, the worse our public policy becomes. And there are people who um, are pushing that because they want to hold on to their, you know, their power. They're hoarding it. And it's a zero-sum game. 
I think we are now in a place where we need to start spreading that power out. And part of what the Bernie Sanders on the positive side, and in my view, Donald Trump on the negative side, showed was that you can really change dynamics um, by speaking uh, about what you believe in and, and how you want to move forward. So, yeah, of course, you know, at some point I'm going to have to make a decision. But for me, the grounds upon why I make the decision is much more important than the uh, the traditional rules of engagement that you know have a, have really done a disservice to our state. I think over the past, I'm going to just say, past eight uh, eight to nine years since I've been mayor. And just the, the process you're undergoing is it? Are you? I mean, we haven't seen these things sort of out there in the press, so I don't know. You know, if you've just been really good about this, but have you? Are you quietly sort of? talking with people and having meetings around the state and trying to see where there's support or what yeah, are you so doing? Anything other than sort of just watching than, what's happening? Just talking to us. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we're I, get you I thought you guys were a sports show. <laughs> I was going to come and talk about basketball. Uh, no, I. so I've been giving speeches. I've been, uh, you know, my phone has been ringing, my email, been talking to a lot of people and enjoying it um, and have been, uh, have been asked to talk about and opine on lots of different things that I find myself in a very good position to talk about, whether that's what's it like being mayor of a city that is struggling with income inequality and how do you how do you fight those issues and how do you work on them? To being like, what's it like to have been, you know, at ground zero in the midst of all these corruption scandals and having everyone tell you, hey, just you know, be quiet, go cut the ribbon and shut up. Like why can't you just get along, Stephanie? Everybody gets along and everything will be fine. To, you know, going up and down the thruway and seeing one example after another of failed uh, economic development promises that are just, and then at the same time walking into my house and seeing, you know, turning on the television and seeing like these new New York ads, which are promising us that everything is going really, really well. Um, so uh, that's, you know, so yeah, I'm talking to everybody. I, I've, you know, and that means Republicans have called me. I, I, um, I have a, a, an interesting, a positive relationship with a lot of Republicans. Uh, and in many ways, I think it's because they know, like, you know, a minor, somebody will tell you what she thinks and she's not going to hide and she's not going to, you know, tell you uh, one thing in private and do another thing in public. Um, and as a consequence of the fact that I've been saying, like, this economic development policy is not working, and lo and behold, it hasn't worked. And then on top of that, now it's, you know, we're seeing that it's rife with corruption. People are saying, you know, we, we want to hear what you have to say. And I'm, I'm happy to share it. In your calculus, I'm wondering um, where gender fits in. If there's ever been a year when <clears throat> there is a vast sea of sentiment that we need to change the culture of power and reduce the male dominance thereof, it's, it's, this, it's this year because of everything that's been happening. Um, but there is a, a woman in the race for governor. Um, there's a question, obviously, if you had two prominent women, if that would merely split that sentiment uh, among women and, and male voters who want to see a female governor. Um, would that be part of your analysis, part of your calculus as you decide whether or not to enter the race? Well, I've always been a woman, so it's always, I'm always... It's always going to be part of my calculus. I don't know how it impacts my calculus. Um, it, it's just part of my experience. And again, part of my experience that I would say, 
I'm never going to be a member of the old boys club. And if you look at me, you will see that. And then you will also see that uh, by the very looks of me from my uh, lack of height, which I blame my parents for, um, to my gender, uh, you know, to my, uh, I used to be very young looking before I became mayor, but I'm relatively young looking now. <laughs> All of that stuff kind of f factors in. I, 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 the way I think about it, based on my experience of having been the first woman mayor of, um, of Syracuse is that you have the benefit when people look at you of saying she's different you know and people are hungry for change and um, and I think that there are room for all voices who are gonna say we're gonna make our public policy stronger and better to solve problems and whether those ideas um, come out of traditional places or traditional uh, looking uh, mouthpieces or whether they come out of non-traditional uh, I'm you know, either is fine with me. So, um, so what's on? Uh, you have to be considering sort of a variety of options now at this point in your career. What's what is on the menu other than a gubernatorial run? Is is a is a election year? You know, you you decided you weren't going to be part of the legislative selection process for attorney general. Is a run for attorney general? No, no, that's no, not on the table. No, either. it's not on the okay. table. Okay, so so it's. Perhaps run for governor, Perhaps, and then yeah. anything else on the menu right now, or no, sort of and, um, make that decision and figure other things out. Again, I, I, the way I have always made decisions about whether to run for office is this combination of: Do I think I have the ideas? Do I think I can put together a team um, to make a strong argument? And you know, of course, there's always ego in it, uh, but you also have to be prepared. You know, are these ideas important enough to me that I'm willing to lose over them? Uh, and so when I uh, was wrapping up my uh, last year in office, I had all of these people, again, very flattering, coming to me saying, you've got to run for Congress. And I thought about it, and, I, and you know, like, oh, be, you know, that would be the right thing to do. It seems like the natural place to go from being mayor to running for Congress in a year where it's really important. And when I started thinking about what it is that motivates me to be in government, it's making change, it's uh, impacting public policy. I realized that at this particular time in our country, the House of Representatives uh, was not going to be a good fit for me. So I said no. And then other people came to me and said, oh, well, you know, you got to run for John DeFrancisco's seat. And I said, well, here's a tidbit. I don't live in that seat. Oh, they said, don't worry about that. <laughs> that's a technicality. That. Uh -huh. I'd be like, you know who thinks that's a technicality? People not from, <laughs> from that district. Um, but I, you know, wasn't interested in that. And then others said, oh, there's an IDC member. So so all of this is to say that it's been very flattering that people have come to me with all of these different options, but I, I do the, the analysis myself a different way. I start at the ideas, what it is that I want to accomplish, do I think I have something worthy to give, can I make an impact, uh, and then from there, then you decide uh, what's what will be next. So in our last last couple minutes here with Stephanie Miner, Jericho. Yeah, I'd yeah. ask one last question, then Henry sure. closes out. So kind of a policy question. Um, you know, most of the millions of listeners of the Max and Murphy podcast <laughs> are based in the city, mm -hmm. and so we think of upstate as as sort of one large different area, and we think of it as being on a different economic track. Things are generally booming in the city, and we know upstate you see unemployment rates. Think Hamilton County, like thirteen percent. It's 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 terrible. Well You're, done for calling out Hamilton yeah, County, though. Yeah, very small county, yeah. but terrible <laughs> unemployment, um, although a lovely place. Um, having, you know, spent much of your life up there, including your public life, what is your diagnosis of upstate New York? Is it about a single set of problems that affects Syracuse and Rochester 
Binghamton and Buffalo? Or are they really separate place-based sort of puzzles that government or someone else needs to solve? Well, I think that it comes down to the fact that when you look at upstate New York, it is, uh, its historic economic development has been in manufacturing, large space-based manufacturing that would take up a great deal of property, have uh, you know thousands of employees, places like Carrier, General Electric, Otis Elevator in uh, Yonkers, which some of your listeners may uh, call upstate. <laughs> um, and Where does upstate begin, by the way? <laughs> we'll For me, yeah, we'll get back to yeah, that. We'll ahead, but what happened is that this engine of New York City in the metropolitan area, so I would put Westchester and Long Island in that area, people where you commute into New York, has, you know, has been firing on all cylinders uh, since uh, you know, uh, Governor Kerry was able to uh, put it back together and uh, my good friend Richard Ravage. That has masked the decline uh, of upstate and the fact that the fundamental policy has not addressed the change in our global economy and that big scale manufacturing like that doesn't exist anymore. So instead of dealing with the underlying problem, they were just kind of giving them, uh, giving uh, them us little tidbits. Here, here, have this little Christmas present. Have this little piece of cotton candy. It'll help. It'll help numb the pain. What I would say to you, though, is while uh, upstate New York has, you know, economic, real economic issues in terms of. Um, meaningful employment where people can support themselves and their families, uh, it's public policy that hasn't addressed those in a meaningful way. And here in New York State, public policy has not addressed, again, subways, transit, um, infrastructure. I mean, when, when you're in New York City and you're getting text messages that say, hey, there's going to be a heavy rain, don't flush your toilet, that's not a first world city. And that's what we have. And yet, you know, you have people saying, oh, we're like the greatest city in the world. And we are, but our public policy doesn't show it. Um, you know, affordable housing, that's a huge issue. I can't tell you how many people talk to me about the fact that they can't, they are fearful and realize that they can't grow up in the same neighborhoods. They want their kids to grow up um, in the same neighborhoods that they grew up in, and that is no longer uh, uh, affordable. And they're worried about what does that mean? Um, and that, you know, that is public policy that is failing to solve problems or address them in a meaningful way. I have um, two more very quick questions for you, but we, you were going to say for you, upstate begins. Yes. Yeah, so for me, um, upstate uh, begins where the MT, uh, Metro North ends, so Poughkeepsie. Okay. Um, so just very briefly, um, if, if you had to just look into the future and you decide this isn't the year for you, is it a given that you would get behind Cynthia Nixon? Is it, is, no. Are you, no. No, it's okay. not. No, I'm... You're not in a position of sort of anybody except Andrew Cuomo? No, uh, I'm not at all. I, I'm more in the position of, of, like, this is a brave new world, and I'm looking for uh, new approaches, new solutions, new ideas. Okay, and lastly, I, I realize we probably should just asked you, you know, you've been in New York City. Have you met with Mayor de Blasio? Is, I, you know, I know Mayor, de, I've known uh, Mayor de Blasio for a number of years, uh, going way back. Um, and we've worked on policy issues, you know, school funding, the one that uh, comes to mind. Uh, but as, you know, in New York, in politics, there's like the big five cities and then kind of everybody else. And so um, I worked with uh, Mayor Bloomberg when I was first mayor, and then when Mayor de Blasio came in, I worked with him and uh, his administration as well. And generally speaking, yeah, I, look, I, you know, uh, generally speaking, uh, I've always uh, liked Bill. I think he's a really good person. Okay. Well, thanks for all the time, uh, Mayor Miner, and we're looking forward to seeing uh, what you, you do next. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it.